and welcome to the eighth British Football Coaches Network edition of the Developing Your Football World podcast. I'm Matt Ward and today I'm outnumbered by a couple of gents who was recently in Bangladesh. The first one is my trusty co-host James McLoon. James, hello, how you doing mate? And just a quick question, is it raining in Vietnam right now? Uh, Matt, great to be here. Thank you for having me again. And uh, Rob, thanks for being with us. Uh, it did rain a little bit today, but it wasn't too bad. And uh, thankfully, it passed us by. But I'm pretty sure, looking at the clouds above, it was really wet somewhere in Vietnam. That, that's good stuff, mate. It's been raining for the, the same rain for three days here in Taipei. And I was just worried because I want to make sure that everyone in the UK can still go to the beach tomorrow. That's my main concern. So <laughs> join us as well. James just very, very quickly mentioned his name, but I'll do the full intro. Today we are joined by someone who's been a head coach, former head of medical at Everton FC. He's been uh, present in the England national team development setups and previously with the Bangladesh Football Federation. It's Rob Riles. Rob, I wanted to return a favour when I was on your leader manager coach podcast and give you a, a, a worthy intro, so I hope it, it did it justice. How are you, mate? You, mate. Okay. Yeah, I'm absolutely fantastic, mate, and uh, honoured to be on your podcast, mate, and very humbling as well, so thank you for that. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you, Rob, and really looking forward to it with you both. Uh, just, to, just to start off, a couple of icebreakers. We talk about uh, your or our past playing attributes and coaching attributes. What you think you would be if you are or if you was on the computer game, the football manager game. So, Rob, as a player, what would you say your best attribute was as a player? If you could give yourself 20 out of 20 in something. The, the thing that I ultimately relied on, Matt, um, because of my lack of natural ability was my attitude. I had to have, um, you know, the best attitude. And, and I, I like to think, um, you know, I led the way in that. I had to because without that, I would have never got a game. Um, so I was always first at training. I, I hated not being first in the running. And, um, I, I, you know, I used to cajole people. I used to talk all the time on the pitch. And I was kind of trying all the time to make up um, and bring everything together because, you know, when I got the ball, I had to give it to somebody else who could do something with it. <laughs> if, if, you, if you did have the ability to match that, do you think that would have stayed at the same level or do you think your ability would have outweighed that and you would have dropped off slightly? Or is that in your, in your makeup anyway? It is in my makeup. But, uh, um, I've, I've, I've done a few personality tests. I'm very interested in, in psychology and, and I've done a few personality tests over the years. And, and one of the things I come out on all the time is a very high, what they call the conscientious trait level. And it's, I have to, whatever I do, I have to try and maximise it to the very best. I, I, I struggle to get involved with anything, small talk, uh, any activities that don't involve kind of trying to be the absolute best at it. Um, fortunately, as a little bit of time has gone on and I've got older, you move away from being too competitive and understand it's about yourself, not rather than beating somebody else. So I, I, I kind of think it's probably something that's a little bit innate in terms of wanting to just do the best you possibly can, um, you know, but hey, who knows? It sounds like, uh, it sounds like you did okay and you, you are doing okay, Rob. What about, what, what about coaching? What, what do you say is one of your main attributes, 20 out of 20 for coaching? 
Well, it's a really great question, Matt, and it's really been brought forward to me by this coronavirus situation. And if I can take you back to perhaps a couple of weeks before we left Bangladesh, we did a couple of weeks coaching uh, while the virus, uh, it was a very early stage and people knew about it. And we, we kind of implemented a social distancing protocol and not shaking hands, all the things that were, were considered sensible when you got the advice from the World Health Organization. And do you know what, Matt? I hated it because what I realized was that my way of coaching is so social in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm, I've worked a lot with, with the 17, 16, 18-year-old age group, and I love hugging them. I love punching them. I love messing around. And, and, and it's that bonding and that, that all that stuff that creates that oxytocin in the body that people love that connection. And without that, Matt, I felt like I was 40% of a coach because I couldn't put my arms around the kids. I couldn't love them to death, if that makes sense to you, mate. Uh, and that's, that's for me is how I think if I have got any ability, that's how I really feel that that's where I'm, I'm best at, at, at creating, getting people to be happy people, but focused on, I'm, so, I'm a disciplinarian, don't get me wrong, but, but that, 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 that methodology of, of loving people and, you know, I don't want to be soft, but, but that's how, how, it, how it comes across to me. And, and without that, I uh, didn't feel it was a, actually a great experience, to be honest. Well, well what, a great, what a great point. And, and that already kind of shows uh, something where, where you had to experience change in the way you coach as well, just from the, the, the virus itself. So really, really interesting. And, and I'm sure people are going to start finding that when they go back to coaching and training with whether they're social distancing or not. But having to come up new ways of to keep that bonding the, the same as it is normal or, or uh, of course, uh, leading the sessions, which is going to need some extra thought to it as well. So well, what a great point that is. So Rob, just starting with the first question. Uh, you've basically worked at all levels from university head coach to non-league football, pro clubs such as Everton and Stoke. Uh, you've then been around the England uh, national team set up with development squads. How does leading and, and delivering messages to each of these different levels differ? Another fab question because you are dealing with people who are coming from a different situation. So if you go to the people, the boys, the girls, the, the, the lads, the, the men who are in university, who are in non-league, who are in grassroots, boys in grassroots, these people are either playing for fun they're doing it in their social time. They're giving up their evenings. And yes, they may get part payment if they're semi-pro. But essentially, they're there because they want to be there. They're not there because their livelihood depends on it. So if you, I think you have to understand that. And, it, and your demands, you have to be able to demand the discipline, demand the input, uh, educate them as to what it takes to, to be a better player as part of a team but compared to a professional so if you're dealing with a, a young pro or you're dealing with a professional who's a, you know established a Premier League championship whatever uh, international these guys are 
contracted that they're paid they have to be there and it's told to me if you say jump they have to jump you know whereas you're talking to a non-league player and you say jump he says i don't want to do that i'm going to walk now you have to kind of so you, there's a different ethos in terms of how you treat them although you're always trying to maintain that that leadership uh focus um but you have to respect where people are coming from if that makes sense matt yeah absolutely absolutely and i guess it's a different a different kind of motivation and leadership is needed just like you said i mean it could work both ways where you've got let's say a head coach of a university team you've got some guys who are really keen as mustard whereas some pros they need a, a rocket up their ass most days to, to get them to do the, the basics of things uh so it's not necessarily as soon as you go into pro football you you you're going to be able to uh, lead really easy or control the players easily. Uh, so it, it, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good mixture uh, to, to have. And, and your experiences obviously gives you a good, a good range of coaching with pros, senior, and also uh, youth as well. What, what, what would you say the main difference is a coach has to move into or create when they're going for from, let's say, non-league football? Uh, university football into the pro environment what what do you think a coach has to change the most about the way they deliver or the way they communicate with players it's another great question because you know when people do something for a living when people are really good at what they do which by definition players in the professional game will be in that bracket otherwise they wouldn't be pros they're not, you know, you cannot fool them at all. Um, whereas, I'm not saying you can fool people who aren't professionals. It's subtle. But, you know, definitely with pros, certainly with people like that, and these guys, ladies who, who are paid for doing what they do are elite. They're in the top percentage in the world of doing what they do. You know, they can't be fooled at all. They absolutely know you. They watch you like a hawk. They listen to your words. And very, very quickly, as we all do, because we're, we're all human beings, human nature is, you know, they say you've got something like four seconds to make, you make an opinion subconsciously about somebody yeah. within four seconds. You walk into a dressing room and you start trying to pull the wall over the eyes to cover up for your own frailties you're on a loser straight away. Um, so you, you, you've got to know yourself and you haven't got to know everything. But, you know, I think the answer to your question, Matt, is <laughs> you've got to be the same level of in coaching as they are in playing. So if you're a coach that's got a year's experience under your belt you're perhaps looking to get your b license and you know you've done a little bit of your, of your practices and you've been on a, a youth course and, and you think wow you know I, i'd love to coach seniors you walk into one of those dressing rooms and you've got 22 blokes looking at you with hundreds of years combined experience going tell us something and if you can't do it they're going to switch off immediately and your life's not going to be worth living as in terms of your work so I hope that answers a little bit. Yeah, yeah, more, more than answered it. That is really well put, uh, really well put. I don't think you can explain that as, as better as you did, Rob. 
And uh, without saying teams or names, you, you've been around some environments with, I, I imagine, some top players uh, and obviously some good coaches as well. But have you seen in your time uh, an example or an instance when maybe a coach or staff has lost a player or some players? Have you seen it happen yourself? I've seen a, a considerable amount of that, Matt, which probably indicates that sometimes some of the clubs that we were working at weren't flying. You know, we weren't, weren't winning championships all the time and stuff, which, you know, blimey, winning is something that's not common. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so valued, would it? But yes, I have seen it. I've seen it quite a few times. In fact, I've seen it many times. And I think... It's, it's such a great learning experience. You may not realise it at the time, but if you care about what you do, then you come away from your day's work or your, your tournaments or your season or your week's work and you think, wow, what would I have done if I was that man standing at the front? Uh, and I think there's tons and tons of these experiences which you could classify as negative because things weren't going well, but the amazing learning experiences where you think you see things falling apart and you think right what would I do um, and I've you know I think one of the most acute episodes was at a pro club I had a manager I was in the I was in it was can't remember the time I think it was quarter past five quarter to six Saturday night uh, we'd lost uh, the last player had left the treatment room it was you know, I was kind of just just packing my stuff away, and the manager walked into the uh, the door swung open. The manager walked into the treatment room uh, and just sat on the bed um, and just kind of said, "Rob, what am I going to do?" And, and that was that was the epitome, Matt, of I think of what you're talking about. You know, and, and it was a broken person at that time, uh, and um, yeah, but I think it would already already gone at that point but I've seen many of them and um, it's not uncommon is it otherwise there wouldn't be such a turnover in staff you know what is it the average tenure of a manager is 18 months or something like that so and that, that kind of carries on to the next question I wanted to ask Rob because uh, as, as head of medical at Everton and, and uh, doing a, a lot of physio work in, in different clubs and at different levels as well Obviously, your main focus is on your primary role in the, in the physio capacity, uh, medical capacity. But that also gives a perfect opportunity to pick up knowledge, just as you've just explained as well, and, and pick up examples of what coaches and managers have done right and wrong. So in, in terms of that, what key experiences uh, did you take from the, the staff and players you was working with? Uh, let's say at clubs such as uh, Stoke and, and Everton. I think it links really closely to the question you've asked before, Matt, um, because if you're a, a passionate professional about what it is you do, and I think to have any longevity in the game, you have to be because people say, I love the game, but I dislike the industry. It's a hard industry. There are untruths in it. There are discrepancies in it. And from the outside, it all looks shiny and on the inside you know, at anything that's elite, anything where people are trying to get to the top. It, it's, it's hard. It's a hard industry and you have to have a resilience. So you, you learn to be resilient because you go into it 
<laughs> blimey, you go into it green as grass when you first start and you learn to be resilient. You have to learn very quickly how to deal with strong personalities, how to deal with that hierarchical situation where you've got 25 testosterone fueled passionate men who are in the prime of their life some of whom have uh, got talent that's just unbelievable under immense pressure trying to earn you know big salaries and and, and got expectations on the shoulders that make most people crumble and they will do absolutely anything they can to ascertain that place in that first 11 and to you have to learn to help them to do that and deal with the fallout of that and the, the consequences uh, and their behavior and, and and the way they they deal with with life when that doesn't happen and you have to become multifaceted really in your ability to deal with people uh, as well as be resilient and you have to learn to lead them but also be somebody who they will turn to uh, when they need it if you are especially if you've got a foot in that science or medical camp um, so yeah it, it's that building a relationship it's that maintain maintenance of a leadership position maintaining a loyalty with this the other staff and yeah. you know negotiating your way through that environment with your own mental health intact as well <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and uh yeah just i mean nowadays as well you know okay we may be moving past kind of your 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 managers what are in in charge of everything what they do and now you know, there's examples showing of players who kind of run the change room sometimes. There's been some highlighted uh, examples in the past. Now, obviously, the manager or the coach has got to adapt to that because at the end of the day, the manager still needs to get the win for the club. So you can either try and get the win with the players against you, where you're probably not going to get a win, or you can adapt as much as you can to try and get the players on side to then hopefully make it easier to find them three points. Uh, can you see that? Can you see that kind of uh, being a, a a common route for coaches and managers to to deal with their their staff, playing staff especially, and environment as the years continue to go forward, where players are are becoming a little bit more independent, should we say? I think Matt that um, again, your question to me is it, talking about forms of leadership and again if you take a step back and you look at you go back to the the when, when the football league started in you know 18 1862 or whatever it was 1863 um around that time onward into the early 1900s you know the manager was this distant victorian figure with a cane and a black coat who came in once a week <laughs> left orders picked the team and didn't say boo to a goose or didn't speak to the players, apart from to say, this is the 11. And it's gone on from there to, you know, blimey through all the, the, the decades to the to evolve to the current situation where probably your archetypical 
examples of the great coaches now, you know, your Peps and your, your Mourinho's and, you know, the, the Bielsisters, where they kind of involve the players and they're much closer to the players and so on. Um, so that, Matt, as you've alluded to, has, has evolved, hasn't it? Um, I think one thing's for sure is that the way to success is to be aligned with your players. You know, there's a great phrase which I try and stick to because I think it just sums it up that pe um, people um, don't care what you know until they know how much you care. And that nice. within that sums up, I think, what you're saying. And unless if, if you if you're the leader who stands there and says, I want this, I want that, I want the other, you're distant, you, you know, you use the, the, the stick rather than the carrot or you still use the carrot, but you are not emotionally involved. I think your success will be limited compared to somebody who has, has got buy-in from the, the, the players and the staff and together they create a bonded culture which the players and the, the staff feel is actually theirs and they are part of it and they have a major contributing part to it. That is not easy to create. It takes time. But I think, Matt, that that's the, the, what you're alluding to. And I think that that is the, the thing that great, great leaders should be aiming for. Just a, a last follow-up on, on this kind of topic, Rob. Uh, with the England development squads or development teams, how were the players to handle there? Because there you've got, you know, younger, younger gents, younger lads than, say, the senior pros at Stoke or at Everton. How was their kind of, uh, how responsive were they? And how was their kind of behaviour and, and, uh, and motivation in terms of a, a, a top senior pro? They, it was a fantastic period of time, Matt, the, as a whole, they were absolutely great. Um, you know, the, 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 the squads were led by some fantastic coaches who, who facilitated the culture. And one thing that you've got with, with young, young internationals is these are still in their teenage years, the players, that they're determined that they've got to make a good impression. And so they're really committed to to what you're asking them to do. So discipline was very rarely a problem. And you're dealing with people who are keen to, keen to, to do what's right. And, and the culture, as I say, was created so that it, there was a structure, there was a discipline and everybody knew what was expected. Yes, of course, just like in any other walk of life, any club, any, any, any squad, there were the, the outliers who created, who created issues, but you know, with human beings, you're going to get that, um, and, and you have to deal with that. Uh, but as a whole, uh, it, was, it was a great place to work. You were working with uh, committed people. You were working with players who wanted to do well. And yes, you had a few egos who, who needed, you know, just a little bit of bringing bringing down a little bit. But um, isn't that the case in, in in everything really, where people are striving for the top? Yeah, yeah, generally. Well, I mean, what what great experience. Absolute top, top elite experience that is. James, have you got anything to, to add to that, mate? Uh, well, 
I wish I had things to add. I've got questions to ask, and so I'd like to, as you know, I like to, I like yeah, to learn, yeah, know fine, more. Fine the questions. And, and something with, um, you know, Rob, such great experiences that you've talked us through there. Just a couple of things that hopefully you know, to elaborate on. We, throughout all of the questions that you've answered there and, and helped us understand, talked about the, the drivers of the players and, you know, it doesn't matter the level, university, um, professional environment, national level. And we talked about how the approach differs. So you have to differ your approach depending on the level, whether it's youth, professional, uh, amateur, non-league. What were the common, are there common drivers of the players, regardless of the level that you found that produced the best players or the ones who were continuously consistent and successful? I think there are common drivers, James, absolutely. I think that, that there's, there's a group of, of individuals who have that innate drive to be the best whether that's personally the best or they've got that competitive thing that they want to be at the top it's that hierarchical you know we, we live in a hierarchical society and um, Jordan Peterson talks about it all the time and um, uh, anything with reward and wins and championships is hierarchical and there's people who get in that who they want to be in the first 11 they want to play every game they want to win every tackle. I think there's degrees, there's, there's, there's subtle degrees within that, but yes, the drivers are still there. I think as you go up the, go up the levels from, you know, into your pro game and, and you're international, I think it gets more and more acute. So you'll get more intense demonstrations and examples of that kind of approach in the, you know, in, in the, in the elite game than you will further down. You may get one or two with that kind of attitude in your university team, for example. You've probably got 11 out of a squad of, you know, out of the first 14 or 15 who've got that in the in the senior game. Otherwise, I don't think they're going to be there. And so, and, and I guess that the, the, the great thing that's come out of that is like not spoken about money. You're not spoken about that. We've spoken about the, that drive to, to win that relentless, basically relentlessness, relentlessness, the, yeah, that, that, yeah. to be, to be the yeah. best, yeah. which is, um, which is really fantastic to hear because obviously we're all in the game of football because, because we love it, but there's so much money surrounding football when we see it in the Premier League that sometimes we forget the fact that we don't, the, the top, top players, top, top coaches, they're in the game because hopefully, and as you've just pointed out, that they, they want to win. They want to get the trophy. They want to get the recognition for that talent that they have. And I think that goes into the information that you were talking to us about, about the culture and, and building that culture within, within teams. When you've got those great players within a team, or, the, or maybe not those great, but the, the relentless ones, the ones who, who want to succeed, and then we have to build the culture within the team. How, what are the successful kind of approaches that you've seen of how to build that culture? Okay. Um, I think that it's a 
massive question. Wow, it's a great question as well. But but I think it has to come from there's 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 got to be a core. So there has to be a core. First of all, that culture's got to got to have its seed somewhere. It's got to have its start somewhere. There's got to be a core. Now related to that, clubs have different identities. James, don't they? You know, yeah, it's what's true. success for Stoke City isn't success for Liverpool. Although both sets of fans want to win, would love to win the the European Cup. You know, the Champions League, the the, the Premier League. You know. The, I actually think that, that that teams and supporters expect and want different things, you know. Um, so that culture is very much related to the environment that you're in. Um, you know, we could talk about the Bangladesh national team. What's success for Bangladesh and how they play? Not only with whether they win anything, it's how they play and how they that they facilitate that. It will be different from how the German German national team do it. So there are subtle differences but that culture has to come from key people and maybe you know if we take you know united for example it's probably an outlier now but you know fergie was there for 26 years so alex is there for 26 years and, and you could almost say yes he was in a giant of a club but if you analyze what happened in those 26 years and you read the harvard business review which analyzes his leadership qualities. It, this may never happen again in professional football, but the culture of that club can be virtually, apart from the history of United and, and obviously all the strands that come forward through the generations and the, obviously the enormous fan base and so on and so on and so on. It almost all came from Sir Alex. And the ability for one man to actually create that may never exist again may never happen again so but it has to come from somewhere I mean if you look at if you analyze what Mourinho did at Chelsea I think Chelsea was his time his place his best thing and I doubt whether he'll ever replicate that again but the culture he created that us against the world you know with John Terry and Lampard and, and so on uh, was the culture that worked for Chelsea at that time and it came from him and he, and he had some staff around him and I think you need your staff around you you know so if you've got three or four people around you that, that, that are singing the same song that's where that culture comes from and everybody has to buy into that and the ones who don't will either just leave by default or they'll be asked to leave uh, you know Ferguson got rid of uh, big 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 players you know, Whiteside Robson and uh, McGrath from United because they didn't fit into his into his into his culture. He got rid of David Beckham because Beckham started to move away from what he wanted. You look, you go back to Liverpool and, and you know the famous boot room. You, you know uh, by default, Shanks walks in 1959. You know you've got Ruben Bennett, Bob Paisley, and, you know Evans and, and and the rest of the guys. And, and he said, "Look, guys, we're all in this together. I don't care." You know, as long as you, you don't talk about each other, we're all in this together. Let's get on with it. And over, you know, the 15 or 16 years that Shanks was in charge, that they created a culture. So I think, Matt, your answer for me comes from, it comes from a core number of people who will probably be the backroom staff. Plus now, as Matt has already alluded to with the players, there's a, there's a fantastic book 
uh, I think it was 2018. It's a wonderful book. It's called The Captain Class uh, by a guy called, I think, Dan Walton. And I read it while I was in Bangladesh and it talks about, it's a wonderful book about leadership, about how every successful team has one amazing captain with certain characteristics. And I think that culture has to go beyond the backroom staff and often it's that link with that one or two key players who are key personnel, who are players, who take that culture into the playing side as well. You basically have it, you have a, not basically, from what I said, you have a visionary who knows where everybody wants to go. He drives the vision and he's got his lieutenants on board throughout the staff, the players, all departments. But if there's no visionary like Sir Alex Ferguson or Mourinho, you're never going to get anywhere. So if you've got somebody at the top who's saying, uh, this is all right, we'll just muddle through, then everything else is going to fall by the wayside. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes some of the, some of the stories of why, you know, why did this manager succeed here? Why did this coach do well there? And then he goes and look at Brian Clough, you know, okay, so Brian Clough goes and he wins a title, he gets promotions, he wins two back-to-back European Cups with a, with a, with a team that club that, that, you know, had done very little before that. Yet he failed at Leeds, he failed at Brighton. Well, you could use the word failure if you want to use that word, you know, but he didn't succeed. Um, why is that? Same man, you know, so there has to be factors, James, that, that are there. But I, absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more that often it's one, one shining leader who is the linchpin uh, where it starts, but that person cannot do it on their own. So you need, as you've alluded to, the um, the lieutenants. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's great. It's interesting. I, I I just think that yeah, what you said before underlined that idea, and I think it's important for all coaches there listening, um, going into positions where wherever it is, make sure that you you have a vi- you, you have a vision and you get everyone, as you said, to buy in. But make sure you get the right people on the bus. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think. I remember Tony Pulis saying in an interview that his most important relationship was with his chairman because without that, you could have the best team in the world around you. But if you've got or haven't got that relationship with the chairman, uh, then it's and the chairman decides that it's not what he wants, you know, or the chairperson, you know, it, it's not going to last anyway. So it has to have that kind of link as well in in the football sense. Yeah. So many important things that go into it. It's amazing. I think that's a, a, a great example using, uh, using, using Clough. Obviously, uh, winning back-to-back European Cups, like, like you mentioned, Rob, with a team of kind of what started off as misfits, but also not managing to have the same success at Leeds, Brighton, like you mentioned. Great example, and you can probably say the most current date example would be Mourinho who, who the younger coaches well younger than myself and James will, will know Mourinho going back to Chelsea not quite having the same effect then he, he's going around not with, he hasn't got that same aura um, and everything what you've just explained about the culture leadership in the different cultures in the different environments it does has a it has a massive part to play and I think it's very much underrated if we want to dismiss culture and environment uh, too easily. We have to be careful. Now, I'm going to ease it off a little bit because I don't want you to feel like you're on mastermind, Rob, because 
I think me and James are using this for our own personal <laughs> CP, CPD or something. Uh, so let's, let's into, head into uh, Bangladesh now. So with all your experience, Gavin, in, in England, you ended up going to Bangladesh to work with the, uh, their national team, uh, youth teams. Mm-hmm. What was your kind of your first initial feeling when you landed, when you got there? What, what were, were the main things, what you noticed and you thought, yeah, this is a little bit different? Um, it was, and, and I'm sure you'll, you'll recognise this, Matt, um, you're going from UK to, to Asia, South Asia, Bangladesh. The absolute contrast in terms of the, I'll try and find the words there, take these words to be descriptive words, not judgmental words, but the chaotic you're going into this country of 170, 180 million people. The colour, the vibrancy, the traffic, the noise, the, 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 the evidence of their strong religion that, that's in, in the, the imams who, 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 you know, call to prayer five times a day. The street sellers, the... the, the you know the cycles on the road, the motorbikes, the the absolute, almost never-ending energy of the place, uh, and the, the 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 what can I say? The the it, it, people talk about New York, the city that never sleeps. It almost feels a little bit like that when you go to Bangladesh. You get overwhelmed, sensory overwhelm, and sensory overload with with everything: the color, the traffic, the noise, the the, the culture and um, the absolute hunger of everybody that you come across who wants to meet you and who wants to, they want to be better themselves. They want to be successful. And it, it, it's, it, it's, it's that kind of um, sensory overload is the best kind of phrase I can use to, 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 to describe that first initial, wow, this is Bangladesh. I think, uh, and what's funny with that, there's no, there's no chance whatsoever of going there and not bringing your tempo up to the same level. Your, your alertness heightens, your uh, awareness heightens automatically. And, and straight off the plane, as you said, when you start getting that noise and, and the, the, everything's vibrant around you, it brings you up to that level very quickly. And kind of, as a foreigner anyway, you can kind of add a little bit more uh, tools into, into any... Um, into any environment you're about to go into, but you do have to very, very quickly get on there, land on your feet, running, uh, and get to their level of <laughs> alertness very, very quickly. Otherwise, you can find yourself isolated literally within minutes. You can be lost, you can feel alone straight away, and that can put you in danger of feeling that way for the next two or three weeks, maybe months. So you've got to quickly immerse yourself as soon as you can, get stuck into it, and yeah, and see where that takes you. So once once that's all out of the way, and you and you get through all the hustle and bustle, you get your bags down and everything. Your your first time when you met some of the youth players or the facilities or kind of the players you was going to work with, how close or how different was it to what you perceived you was going to be coming into than when you actually met them and you got working with the players? I have to say, another great question, Matt, I have to say, I went into it with my eyes as wide open as I possibly could with minimal expectations. I, I, I really tried 
before I went to make a conscious effort to be completely open to this experience because it was a big move and um, I wouldn't say a gamble because I, I wasn't concerned about failure or success, but it was as you've, you will both guys have, uh, have invested in, you know, you, you're taking a considerable amount of time to, to get to somewhere and to, and, and to organize it and to do the logistics to get there. So I went it with my eyes open. Um, but it was an experience where a walk onto the grass and there are these 30 young boys and it was uh, just a wonderful experience because they never take their eyes off you. They're, they're waiting for you to breathe the first word. And they were as easy to work with, apart from the getting over and you adjusting to the language and the communication issue. It was a fantastic initial introduction to people who wanted to learn, people who respected you and people who were prepared to do what you asked them to do they were they were actually held signs up virtually saying please leave me that that's how it kind of came across to me when you were yeah i i understand totally what you mean when players want to be coached i found that in ghana and it just made every day i went to training just a joy to actually yeah. coach players who want to want to be coached, want to work hard for you. There's no better feeling. What, what did you feel that they were good at and what areas do you think they needed or did you need to work harder at developing the players at? Um, Matt, they, they all love to have the ball. They all love to have the ball. And, and from a technical point of view, an individual technical point of view, some of them are, are, are really good with the ball. Others, as you get in any group of players, need to catch up. What they so it wasn't so much that there was a technical deficit. What in terms of the technique, what they weren't great at is that consistency in passing the ball. So if you came to an English academy, in my opinion, you'd pretty much get a fairly standard consistent ability of those boys to do 10, 15 yard passes, not necessarily under pressure, but roll the ball, take it left foot, right foot, roll it, take it left foot, right foot. These guys were, weren't so good at that. And I think the reason they're not so good at it because they always want to do a trick. They always want to get the ball, take it with the outside of the foot, roll it around, do, do, a, do a step over and then pass it back. Because that's what they think is, is, is they yeah. thought that, that's how I say it is great football. So, yeah. and so it was just a little bit of a lack of focus of practice to bring them up to that level to get the consistent things that would actually make them more efficient in a game rather than just enjoying having the ball at your feet. What what was so apparent very quickly in terms of what needed catching up was their tactical awareness. It was a little bit like, you know, when you go to a, a junior school and you see 20 kids like bees around a honeypot chasing a ball around a playground. It wasn't quite in that, but that's off. That's what it was like a lot of the time. So I had to spend a lot of time, which was great, by the way, fantastic. 11 v 11, doing basic positional understanding. So as a fullback, you know, I want you to dominate this area of the pitch. 
when we've got possession, yes, you can go up there, but you know, don't be chasing inside all the time and going and playing centre forward because you think there's an opportunity to get the ball. Uh, try and learn to play a position. So it was that technical, sorry, tactical positional awareness that really needed working on that. So interesting. James, is that, is that kind of what you, you saw with some local players as well in, in your time in Bangladesh? Yeah, I, I literally a mirror image. Um, there's nothing better than walking onto the field in Bangladesh because everybody, all players, want to learn. They want to be better. They, they want to be shown how to, to improve themselves and how they can become better footballers. Obviously, the attitude of, of footballers, you would hope generally would be um, positive towards the new face, the new coach. But when you've got a squad of 30, and every, as um, Rob quite rightly says, that they're hanging on every word you say, you better make sure it's good because you're driving their future, but you're also driving your own. But every player wants to learn. Every player wants to improve themselves. And they're all, they're, they, are, they all do quickly buy in to the fact that you know what you're talking about. I'm going to get on board and we're going to work to be better together. But equally, 100% same as Rob, tactically, there, there is a weakness. Um, equally, I'd say, Rob, and maybe you, you correct me if I'm wrong, some of the technique could be improved by better grassroots coaching. I thought that some of, the, some of our players who were coming in, who were maybe 16, 17, 18, 19, we were still teaching them some technique that if they had a, had better coaching when they were 12, 13, 14, they might have already had it under their belt. Would you agree? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And one of the things that we, we, we tried so hard to do was to implement grassroots programs. And um, obviously, as we talked about prior to coming on air, um, the challenges of creating that in, in Bangladesh, uh, in the period that we were there, we weren't able to achieve that. But wow, if there's ever, ever, ever a nation, and I'm sure there's more nations the same, where there is so much scope for bringing millions of young people into an environment to teach them these skills, which will then teach them the social aspects, which will bring them more friendships and, and all the things that football brings that, that go on beyond the game. Bangladesh is it. And I couldn't agree more with your statement, James. And it would have, it was one of my, I actually started a, a, a thing, it started as a personal, a personal endeavour called Finding the One. And it came from okay. reading that book, The Captain Class. And what I, is a personal endeavour, and, and excuse me for being a little bit autobiographical, but I'm out there in this nation and I'm getting... I'm starting to get, I only got one opportunity actually because I put a whole program together to go out and visit every major city in, in Bangladesh and, and open, have open trials. Blimey, we went to one and you know, it's a little bit like the feeding of the 5,000 because we, 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 we had letters sent out to, to this place, the first place that we went to. Uh, I wrote, I've got an, a podcast article called The Road to Mime and Sing and um we went to this, to this pitch, we arrived at this pitch and it took us two and a half hours to get there and driving down the wrong way on a dual carriageway as you do with cars coming <laughs> the other way. 
the only time I said to Moshin, the beautiful driver that we had, Mosh did, oh, should we be doing this? And he just turns to me, eating a sandwich, saying, yeah, we'll be fine. You know, and we just, like a video game, in it? You know, you've been on there yourself. We get there and there's pictures. It looked like um, the, the, what, the Leeds Festival, the day after everybody's gone home, there's litter <laughs> on it, there's goats. Oh, we'll be ready in half an hour. So yeah, that, that was, you know, the score guys. So we did that and we had people turning up, guy, lads turning up who were, I don't think they'd ever seen a football. But after three days, we managed to pick probably 16 players out of that who we wanted to invite back to Dhaka to trial again against the better boys from the other cities. Uh, and this program, this, this, this kind of dream called Finding the One was, was, was never finished. But um, that's what we were trying to do. And James, your point of you know, teaching these youngsters at eight, nine, 10, even four, five, six, if you want to get out there and do it that early, uh, blimey, there's more, more opportunity there than you can shake a stick at. If only we could get those programs established in schools and, and, and communities. Yeah, you have to, there's so much scope. Um, and I think, you know, hopefully somebody or whatever yeah. happens, somebody will be able to continue with that. Yeah. Yeah, but I think you touched on it as well. One of the massive issues with Bangladesh is the lack of facilities. Yeah, it's so tough to 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 drive the you know 170 or however many people 100 million people it is. There is talent out there. There's there's quality. There's um, there's the genetic physicality of the pe of of players that you work with that will and will will be and can be great footballers. Yeah, um, but there's so much that needs to be needs to be done. Um, over a consistent period of time, and I'm talking for me from what I see, and again, Rob, pitch in, it's got to be the next 30 to 50 years. And if they do it well, if it can be done well, you'll have a, a national team that will be competing in the higher echelons because the talent is there, it just needs to be nurtured the right way. It, yeah, it, absolutely. It, it, this is what hurts me because. Uh, I don't need anyone to make comment on this because I don't want anyone to get in trouble. But India, Bangladesh, China, just these big countries, even the United States, right? If people actually cared, really cared about building good players for the foreseeable 100 years future, the potential is there. But would people want to put that in front of money and power for their own pockets? No. And yeah, that hurts me, but I guess that's another topic massively for another day. But yeah, unfortunately, it's never going to happen. And there's going to be millions and millions and millions of potential football players, young football players, which will never get that opportunity because the powers above just really don't give a crap. Um, just finishing off on, on Bangladesh, Rob, what was, your, what was your biggest highlight when you was out there? What, what made it kind of, you know, worth, not worthwhile, but what was the biggest thing what kind of opened your eyes and made you think, yeah, wow, what an experience that was. Matt, you know, it was one of the most meaningful experiences of my, my life. Um, when I first went out there, the group of boys that uh, I was blessed to coach, that through circumstance, we never got together. When I say we, I said, me and the group of players that, that we worked for three months, uh, the first three months. And we were going to the um, SAF Championships, South Asian Football Federation Championships. And through lack, through circumstance, I never got there. 
and uh, that that's another story and in answer to your question what was so meaningful about it was i have never yet up to yet experienced a relationship like like i i was blessed with uh, and again excuse me for talking about myself because it's about the players but the relationship that existed between myself as the as the head coach and the players i, I honestly believe that those boys together we could have done anything we could have done anything and irrelevant of the results that we'd achieved we had such a magical bond i mean you know they invited me to their religious festivals i used to go to prayer with them on fridays you know i'm, I'm not i'm the the, the, the islam islamic religion was something that i still know very little about but in, on Fridays, as you know, you, you, you finish training at 11.30 to give the boys a chance to go home, shower, get changed, um, put their, 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 their clothes on and, and um, you know, go, go to the mosque. And um, they used to say, you know, coach, you, you want to come? And so I'd go with them and, you know, I got the, uh, you know, one of the boys, that, the boys that was injured for a long time and got very close to him because he was injured and I worked with him on that score. He turned to me the first time I was in this mosque in this little outback of, of outskirts of Dhaka. Um, I had to walk across a little wooden rickety bridge to this mosque. You would have never known it was a mosque. And we all go in there, the, all of us, and the boys with the prayer caps on. And um, he turned to me and he passed me this beautiful prayer mat. And he went without. I said, no, no, you have it. And he said, no, no, coach, for you. And when we came out, he said, my mum, gave me that prema and he wanted me to have it and that to me sums up you can forget the football you can forget the fact that we did really well in the afc we did wonderfully well uh, as a group in it with another with another another squad we we, we won a, a uefa championships in in dhaka in the latter part of the time i was there but that group really strange that we never actually got to the championships but for, in terms of you look at that I look back at that three months I had with those boys and it just as I sit here talking about it it just sends shivers up my spine I actually love the bones of them guys and I know how I felt that they would have done absolutely anything a for each other and b for me and that sums it all up you know you couldn't buy that Matt and um, just for that alone it was fantastic yeah, these are experiences you can't buy. Experiences like that you cannot buy and possibly you're not in the right mind frame or even in the right country to get them back in the UK either. Just un unreal. No, no. And, uh, you know, I remember, Matt, we were, we'd, fin we'd finished this, this particular championships where the boys had done really well in this UEFA championship in Dhaka. And uh, we came to the day when we were leaving and... and You've been in Dhaka yourself, and, and, and it's this, wow, you know, the streets are thronged from morning till night. There's cars, motorbikes, and I've got these 15-year-old kids who came to the Maru, knocked on the door, gave them a hug each, and then they just go and disappear. And as they walk out into this city, you're thinking, you would never let your own child just walk away like that. But these kids, you know, it's a different environment, a different culture, and, and some of them I never saw again. And I've seen, I'm watching them walk away and, I, and, and, you know, you've literally got tears in your eyes thinking, oh, I, never, I might never see these guys again. Yeah. And, oh, 
you know, mate, just just wonderful stuff for me personally. Very personal, good, and um, you know, good, it's not good about memories about in terms of good memories in terms of coaching and and life. Beautiful, uh, amazing, really, really good to hear. It sends shivers up my spine as well, just listening to the story. It's uh, you, beautiful. You you need to see start back again so you can get back out there. Um. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, when everything's safe uh, and well, I'm sure sure we'll be back. Hope so, um, mate. Yeah, I hope so. Let's yeah, hope I hope so. so. And I think, to, uh, I, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting, I'm losing my words now. It's such an emotive speech you just gave, Rob. It's, you know, it's, it's fantastic to hear. And those experience that, that experience will, will, will live with any coach for, for a lifetime. And, you know, the players are, are all... They're beautiful people. Everyone in Bangladesh, you, you meet beautiful people. You do, mate. You do. You do. Everybody is kind. They're happy. They want to know about you. They want to be close to you. The players are constantly on the phone. Like even I've been back for two months. I get three or four phone calls a day. Coach, I miss you. Coach, where are you? Coach, I'm like you okay? I'm like I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> mate, get get them all on a Zoom a Zoom chat. Get a hundred. Yeah, get a hundred in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you know what? James, James, that, that, that little point there that you're talking about is that that is probably just worth mentioning is that the fact that one of the things you want to do, which is the, the add-on to the fact that you, you've got these beautifully, amazingly attentive, open-eyed players who hang on to every word you say, what you actually want, I think as well, is a little bit more of a balance where that they, they grasp hold of some leadership themselves particularly when they go over that white line and take on that responsibility because the culture of the country is such that and it's related to the high esteem that you as a foreign coach are held in i think it needs to be balanced where they actually start to believe more in themselves and take on that mantle of leadership to be the ones who go on the pitch and lead instead of constantly looking at the bench and thinking am i doing okay what do i do now uh, you want them to grasp that that incentive, don't you? you do and um, with the right guidance and the right people around, yeah. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully yeah. they they will. Yeah. On a lighter note, uh, Matt, you did say um, you've got to raise your level, um, raise your attentive level when you arrive in Bangladesh, otherwise you'll drop off. If you don't, Matt, you'll get run over. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like, and that, no, that's no, just no. the start of it all. That's just, yeah, and yeah. that that might not be by a car. That could be by anything. Yeah, <laughs> James, when you go back to Bangladesh, there's a just near to where we're staying. There's a rickshaw driver who owes me uh, five hundred taka. So, can you just have a word with him for me and see if you can get it back for me? Right, <laughs> I'll I'll tell him to send it by um, sorry, UPS keep, or, or transfer. Yeah, <laughs> I got out of the airport of in uh, in Accra in, in in Ghana. They lost my suitcase for two hours. So as soon as I got my suitcase, went outside and people try and take it off me again. I said, Lance, I've only just found it. Come on, give, give me a bit of time. Yeah, you're gonna be alert. You're gonna be ready. So yeah, just definitely do. <laughs> just quickly finishing now. Just uh, finishing off on a bit more uh, uh, leadership talk, management talk. Uh, Rob, you're also responsible for the, the podcast website, Leader Manager Coach. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Because 
if anyone isn't already subscribed and listening to these episodes, what you do, you, you've already given enough just on this pod alone, some great leadership and management points. And with your experience, people should be tuning in and hearing more from you. So can you just give us a little overview of what it's about and how people can get involved with it if they're interested in, in subscribing? Yeah, of course, Matt. Leader, manager, coach was born. Um, it's evolved since I was a kid. I, it started, I was a strange kid who, who used to watch the FA Cup final sitting on my grandmother's settee um, on this this black and white TV when I was that age. And I became mesmerised the first time she had a colour TV. I watched the 1974 Liverpool versus Newcastle FA Cup final. And there was this little wee Scottish man sitting on the bench doing these hand gestures. And I, I was more interested in him than I was in the game. And that guy was Bill Shankly. And Shanks, without a doubt, is light years for millions became my my hero and um he is just the the archetype of uh, of the managers that i was brought up with and um that's never left me and as i got into the game and got lucky enough to to get work in the game and work you know as you've alluded to in in the, the industry that so many people want to get into um a few years ago i started to want to just had this urge to share all this kind of experience that you know you guys have got as well that you pick up on your own journeys so uh, I, I don't know how you know sometimes you ask a question how can I share this um, and, and I just had this idea so somebody created me a website uh, couldn't decide what to call it and they said what are you interested in I said well leading leading manager and coaching so we called it leader manager coach and it just kind of summed up how I felt about my work life really leading managing and coaching um, so that was born um, a couple of years ago. Uh, I, I invested in a, in, in a, in a, people sort of said, oh, you need to get on social media. And I was very reticent to that. And, uh, you know, I kind of, as much as we're on a podcast now, I, I, I don't think um, shouting from the rooftops is one of my strengths. And I'm very much for, for taking a back seat in terms of self-promotion. Um, but started a podcast just because I wanted to share stuff and, and, and I read a quote the other day from a wonderful guy called Danny Webster who's one of the guys who's created my app who, who said that the, it's much better to have a hundred people who love you than a, than, than a world full of people who think you're okay and that kind of sums up why I started Leader Manager Coach I just wanted to share my experiences and, and I just thought I don't care if nobody listens I couldn't care less. I'm doing this for me. So it was a very selfish thing. I wanted to do it for me. It just felt right. So I started to do leader manager coach, didn't have any training, just paid a few quid to get a microphone, uh, did it. And then, um, you know, we've knocked out kind of what, we've got about a hundred, hundred dollar episodes published. There's another 50 in the bank waiting to go. Um, and I just share stuff, leadership. It's, it, it goes wider than football. It's about leading, managing and coaching in football, in sport and life. You know, Shanks' famous quote is, you know, um, football is not a matter of life and death. It is much more important than that. And if you know the man, he didn't really mean that. He, he was such a humanitarian that football, as much as we think it's life and death, and it has to be in a way, it really isn't. And I think the time we're in now with uh, the COVID thing is actually the, one of the biggest lessons that of anybody who's got their eyes open is that actually there's more important things than football as much as football is the catalyst 
And that's not to degrade football. It's not to put it anywhere where it shouldn't be or put it on a shelf. It's not important. You know, it's people's livelihoods. But I hope the message comes across. So leader, manager, coaches out there. And uh, I love literature. I love reading. And um, I've met many fantastic people, some unbelievable coaches. I've spent 12 years uh, at, um, at the FA you know, traveling around the world, paid for watching coaches do sessions, sitting on A license courses for weeks on end every summer for 12 years, you know, watching some fantastic coach educators, the late great Dick Bate and uh, Steve Rutter and Jeff Pike and John, John Peacock and Kenny Swain and Noel Blake and blimey, you know, Walter Smith and David Moyes and all the rest of it. And uh, completely blessed. Um, worked with you know, I feel like I'm a dinosaur. Worked across the age groups with you know Gaza and um, I don't know Duncan Ferguson and, and and some of the people who were who were heroes in the the 80s, 90s, and you know, and also had the fortune to to come through and work with the England youth teams and you know all the guys, the Raheem Sterlings and Ross Barkleys, and, you know, and um, Jack Butlins and the guys who are in the game now and making making names for themselves. I've been blessed with that, Matt, and to sit here and hold that into myself and think about it and think aren't I lucky? Well, that's not good enough, you know? So I just wanted to get it out there. So that's how leader manager coach was born. And I try and share anything I can that I think is relevant. And um, we've got an app coming out, which hopefully will be out in the next month where people can just download the app and they can access all this stuff and um, use it and take it away. And hopefully it'll improve their own lives. We're going to have a couple of um, subscription services for the, the, the guys who want to be more elite, who, whether that's a, you're a coach or a player and you want to actually get involved in, an, in a structured education program uh, and you want to access that in addition to, the, to all the free content. But um, yeah, so that's leader, manager, coach. And I just hope it's a valuable contribution to the football world uh, and beyond as well, man. Superb. Thanks, Rob. So, so ladies and gents, you need to get on that. I mean, just by listening uh, again to that briefly, huge huge wealth of experience to be got there so if people aren't taking this on board then uh yeah a bit of error of judgment in my opinion so get on that for sure james would you like to finish off anything at all to do with leading managing coaching uh just to say i think that what you're doing rob is is fantastic and i think i've said this numerous times coaches who want to achieve the best that they can be or they want to reach their potential whatever that is gotta doesn't matter how good you are or where you are you've got to leave your ego at the door and go and listen to other people because you can get so much valuable information from everybody people with vast amount of experience like yourself as well as the new you know coaches who are just entering the game everybody's got ideas listen think engage reflect and take the best bits out and work towards the best the best that you can be and rob thanks for sharing thanks for doing it because i know that i listen to the podcast and it it's, it's just great fantastic information that's on them and yeah. you know there's so much more so many so many of them to listen to I, it's, it's the next year's. I say it again. It's next two years CPD. I'm doing my best to doing my best to be better and you're helping. So, so if Thanks. anyone ever says like, "Oh yeah, can you show me your logbook?" Just play back all these all these pod episodes. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it, but it, it's it's just fantastic. Like 
People go out there, oh, I can't access that course, or I can't get there, or I can't, you know, it's not accessible to me. Well, okay, yeah, you can't do that, but you can do something. You yeah. can go and listen to people with experience. There's, you know, there's too many, I'm not saying, there are barriers, but there aren't as well. Go out there, if you're a coach and you're listening, if you want to be better, go and listen to people and take what you want from it. You might not yeah. agree. Exactly. Figure exactly. it out. Rob, Thanks, on, that, on, on that note, Rob, thank you so much for your time. It's been enlightening and I've, I've really enjoyed it because it's huge topics I, I enjoy as well, uh, especially leading and managing. Loved it, mate. And top, top experience for anyone to appreciate. So thank you so much, Rob. Look after yourself and I hope you can get back to doing what you love very, very soon. Yeah, listen, mate, uh, it, it's an absolute pleasure. It's very humbling and genuinely mean that to be um, uh, invited onto your podcast, mate. And, um, you know, I, you personally, and obviously, excuse me, James, just talking to Matt for a sec, but Matt, that's all right. You, Matt, uh, you've proved yourself over, over the, the last 12 months that I've actually known what you do to be somebody who gives such amazing value. And without your product, uh, the, the football coaching world would, be um, much poorer place, mate, because because you, you know, you've provided a service to to coaches, and um, it's such a valuable one. But thanks for inviting me on, mate, and I really appreciate it. No, that, thank you for that, Rob. I'll, I'll leave that bit in. I won't edit that part out. James, thanks, mate. Like always, giving up your time, your energy, uh, much appreciated. And I hope you can now go and relax by your pool. I oh, know it's seven seven thirty. I hope you can't. Okay, but take care and talk soon, okay? Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Wow, what another amazing episode that was. Huge, huge, huge elite learning there for all of you. And if you want to make sure you catch the future episodes, subscribe to the Developing Your Football World podcast. You can get it all on your phone or laptop on your specific platform. Google, search, or search Developing Your Football World podcast. Subscribe and don't miss another one. See you soon. Take care.